Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Continental plates moving around, causing volcanoes all over the earth. Now, when did our continents first begin to move on top of each other? When did subduction process, sliding plates, really start to take off? And what were the consequences for our planet? Plus, how some volcanoes and piecing together geological history helps us study how volcanoes have formed in Alaska and Australia, and how it might relate to subduction and calderas. Now, if you picture the globe, you picture all the continents, and when you cast your mind back to the age of the dinosaurs, maybe you picture them rearranging themselves into shapes like the massive supercontinent Gondwana. But that wasn't always the case. There wasn't always continents on our planet. In fact, at some point in early Earth's history, we didn't have any continents at all. We actually just had large oceans with small rocky outcrops that sort of poked out. At some point, there was a transition from having small fleeting existence of land masses to the creation of the continental plate system that we know today. The problem is, trying to figure out when continents really started to exist Well, that requires solving a mystery that's millions and billions of years old. A very long, cold case. That's exactly what researchers from the Scripps Institute of Oceanography, led by Sarah Ahrens, Jesse Remenick, Nicholas Gerber, Andy Hurd, Zhang, and Nicholas Dalfas, published in the journal Science Advances. Now, one of the reasons why studying the history of the continents, the history of subduction and movement of continental plates, is that rocks are pretty much constantly destroyed as the crust moves into the mantle. So if you imagine two plates colliding with each other, well, subduction is when one plate goes underneath the other. Great, interesting, very important for the creation of continents. But the problem is that destroys a lot of rock. Those rocks are constantly destroyed as that plate moves into the mantle. So if you want to try and piece together the puzzle, you've got to find something that hasn't been destroyed over this process of millions and billions of years. So that means we have very few samples that date back to early points in the Earth's history. Now we know that the Earth is around 4.6 billion years old, but we don't know exactly when plate tectonics and subduction really began. The range of estimates are anywhere between 0.85 billion years ago to 4.2 billion years ago. That is basically almost the entire lifespan of the Earth two-thirds, more than two-thirds of the planet's history. So discovering when Earth went from being a planet dominated by fleeting landmasses coming through the oceans to one dominated by continents that lasted for billions and billions of years, well, that's really important for understanding the development of life on Earth, but also a really complicated geological mystery. One of the really significant pieces about having long-lived continents is that you start getting really long timescales for key biogeochemical reactions. Volcanoes to gas, they recycle into this interior, land masses build up, you get plant life, then you get animals living on that plant life, and that then dies out and then they get caked into that layer, and you get a whole bunch of flow and effects and changes in an area due to the presence of life in that zone. So understanding when continents actually began is really important. Now one key area of plate tectonics is subduction. That's where oceanic crust typically and continental crust collide. Because continental crust is thicker but less dense, oceanic crust gets like pushed underneath into the mantle. And this happens all the time at an average rate of a few centimetres a year. 
Now this interlap, now this motion actually creates all kinds of things like volcanoes that you see along the Pacific Rim. Another key part about this is that it creates these large continental plates and these big basins that become oceans, lower and higher regions on the planet, less dense or more dense, thicker or not thicker. This creates differences, basins which fill with water, land masses which are elevated that become the continents when those water comes in. So these tectonic zones are responsible for the, basically the formation of the continents that started to emerge out. That then, obviously, once plant life started growing on them, started to contribute to greenhouse carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and actually creating of the atmosphere we see today. Because again, remember that the early world did not have an oxygen-rich atmosphere. That was a byproduct of life. And the creation of that life in the first place also relies on continents. So how do you piece this together? Well, that's what Scripps' assistant professor Sarah Ahrens was actually looking for. Now, she's a geochemist by trade. And what she was trying to do was find some of the oldest rocks that we could possibly see and analyze these for certain isotopes found inside these rocks. Now, what she was looking at was rocks, sample rocks, from some of the Earth's oldest known rocks, which are about 4.02 billion years old. They're found in the Canadian tundra from the Acastanese complex. This is an outcrop of nice rocks, nice rocks that are around 4.02 billion years old. That's from the Hadean era of Earth's history. That was one where it was much more of a volcanic and violent place, more like what you would imagine hell to look like than our nice, lush planet that we have today. Now, the way we can often date rocks is by using isotopes, basically variations in molecules of an atom that have more or less neutrons in them. By studying the concentration of these variations, we can use it to date something. Particularly in certain types of radioactive isotopes, you can date them based on their half-life. But Sarah Ahrens was actually not looking so much at the radioactive isotopes, but ones of titanium. And the reason why she was focusing on titanium because it's actually found in that sample. Now, what she does first is crush little bits of rock into a powder that's then heated to form a glass bead. This process allows you to melt different parts of the, found in that rock, in this case, titanium, which is what she wanted to actually analyze. So once cooled, the bead was dissolved in acid, and you can actually then chemically separate the titanium from all the other elements. And that's really important because then you can use those titanium isotopes to, when you take it back to a mass spectrometer and study it in detail, actually have the fingerprint of that rock and what that rock's been exposed to. Now, all of this, of course, relies on mass spectrometry and detailed study of the chemical composition of a rock, where that's where other collaborators like Nicholas Dalfus from the University of Chicago come in where they bring the expertise in this detailed chemical analysis of rock. One of the striking things about these old samples of rock is that they looked very similar to rock from plume settings like in Hawaii and Iceland where a landmass is drifting over a plate hotspot where they get all this lava rushing up and then forming an island. Now that's interesting because that means that at that point in time, this sort of volcano style creation of land masses and motion was more the dominant function. But when they looked at other rocks aged a bit younger, around 3.75 billion years ago, the rocks from this period look more and more like the modern rocks that we find in modern current subduction zones. So that suggests that whilst 4.02 billion years ago, these samples and this titanium isotope it indicates that wet magnetism was present 
and there was some early signs of plate tectonics. You can't make a global assumption on that. But by studying these samples and samples from other areas, you can sort of narrow down the range of when plate subduction started. Instead of being, you know, two-thirds of Earth's history, we can now get it down to between 3.75 and 4 billion years old. And that is very interesting because it means that we have a date now for starting to piece together some of the most important things in Earth's history. When did we start having stable continents forming and how did that lead to the generation of life on Earth as we know it? This is some great research from University of California, San Diego, published in the journal Science Advances, about how our continents started to form and when it all went down. Now Alaska is a beautiful place. It lives on part of the Pacific Ring of Fire, which means that it also has lots of volcanoes. That's exactly what researchers like John Power from the Alaska Volcano Observatory, as part of the USGS, and Diana Roman uh, from the Carnegie Institution for Science have been investigating. Now there's a small group of volcanic islands in Alaska itself called the Alaska Aleutian Chain. Now this chain is actually beautiful to look at as well because it's basically a ring of islands that dot from the coast the tip of Alaska all the way towards what is Russia. Now that's interesting enough but these islands have a lot of volcanoes in them. There's a group of islands and mountains called the Four Mountains which includes Mount Tanner, Herbert, Cleveland and Carlisle. Now these are all volcanic mountains as well and there's a string of even more along this long list of islands. So the island of Four Mountains is one of many of these little volcanic outcrops and areas that stretch out from Alaska as it reaches towards Russia. And this has been intriguing the groups of volcanic researchers. That's what exactly these two researchers are presenting at the American Geophysical Union full meeting in 2020. Now, the Four Mountains, there's actually six strata volcanoes in them, including Kakamil and Uliaga. But they're, they're all stratovolcanoes, stratovolcanoes, which is that steep conical shape, which has the clouds around the top and an ash-waving summit. These can produce really powerful type eruptions as well. But there's another type of eruption that can happen. They can have big, powerful plummet-type eruptions, but they can also have the caldera-forming eruptions, the ones where that top of that mountain gets blown off and you end up with a big bowl, the caldera, inside of it. Now, one of the things that scientists have been studying, not only tracking these volcanoes and this string of islands, they're trying to understand how all of these volcanoes might be linked to the one system. We've already talked about the Ring of Fire and the subduction zone around there, but moreover, these might be all part of one very large supervolcanic structure, or at least one very large interconnected caldera. Now, a stratovolcano typically has a small basically a small to medium size reservoir of magma that gets pushed up all the way through that's pushing up this mound that then erupts. And that's interesting. But a caldera actually taps a huge reservoir of magma underneath the Earth's crust. And when the reservoir pressure exceeds the strength of the crust above it, it bursts out that whole bowl in a massive eruption. So rather than a small pipe, it's actually got a lot of large area. 
And cardioforming eruptions are some of the most explosive that we've ever seen on Earth. For example, the eruption of the nearby Okmok volcano, which we think happened around BC 43, had tremendous implications for weather across the world. And we can trace that through its disruptions and recorded in the history of the Roman Republic. Now, if you start to study through bathymetry or pressure data collected on these regions, you can see that the linkages between these different mountain systems. For example, there's a caldera that looks like, or a zone of rock and space that looks like it's connecting all four islands of this four mountains region. And that means that not that whole string of Aleutian Islands is linked, but at least these four to six volcanoes in this one region are actually linked to one volcanic caldera. Now, to do this, though, you have to scrape through and get all kinds of strange data to find out what's going on. You have to use all kinds of satellite and bathymetry imagery to try and study the behavior of these rocks and also what's underneath the sea and look at the thickness of the crust in those regions as well. Now, if all these volcanoes are linked to the one caldera, that might explain why these volcanoes, some of them in particular like Mount Cleveland, are so active. They don't just have a small pool of magma at their disposal. They've got a much larger pool in that caldera, and that's driving the volcanic eruptions because Mount Cleveland is arguably one of the most active volcanoes in North America, at least for the last 20 years. It regularly produces high ash clouds that go all the way up to 30,000 feet above sea level, which can disrupt air travel. So this helps give researchers a better idea about why Mount Cleveland is more active, but also how that whole ring of islands in the Aleutian Island chain are linked together and how some of them may be all connected to the same calderic volcano. Some great research presented at the AGU Forum meeting by researchers John Power and Diana Roman. Now, Australia doesn't have many active volcanoes around it because we're a little bit far from the Pacific Ring of Fire, despite having an incredibly large landmass onto the Pacific Ocean. The edge of the plate is actually a little bit away from us, which is great because we don't have too many earthquakes or volcanoes in Australia. But off the Australian east coast, there's all kinds of remnants of volcanoes. The most recent, actually, just a few thousand years old. Now, that's what researchers and geoscientists from the University of Sydney have been trying to understand. Because the continent of Australia is such a stable, flat, long-lived continent, but the coast is such a hotbed of volcanic activity. And there's also some points of Australia where you have large remnants of actually volcanic mountains. Now, since we're not on the Pacific Ring of Fire, well, you can't really explain easily what the cause of these are. And that's what researchers like Dr. Ben Mather are trying to piece together. Now, there's a couple of big and interesting remnants or notable structures that are part of old volcanoes. In Tasmania, there's the famous Cradle Mountain. There's the organ pipes in Victoria, the Undara lava tubes in Queensland, Sawn Rocks in Nibiri in New South Wales. So there's heaps of these volcanic structures on the Australian east coast that all have connection to some kind of volcanic activity. 
But because we're not on a plate boundary, how did we get all of these volcanic bits left over? Now, there's a couple of hundred eruptions that have occurred on the east coast from North Queensland to Tasmania in their age range of around 20 to 2 million years ago. These recent categorization of volcanoes, there's actually been a fair number of them. These volcanoes aren't caused by the Australian plate moving over hot plumes in the mantle under the Earth's crust, because it's more of a consistent pattern of activity rather than a few notable peaking spikes. Also, the type of volcanic activity we see isn't what we think of when you think of one of those lava plumes. Now, the peaks of volcanic activity correlate nicely with the amount of seafloor, though, that's being recycled down at Tonga Kermadec Trench, which is on the far side of Zealand. Now, when you think about New Zealand, it's a little piece right on that edge of the continental plate. And this is where the, what was the continent of Zealandia is actually being subducted under the ocean floor. Coming back to subduction again. So as this ocean floor is being gobbled up in the subduction process, it can create a little bit of instability. This instability seems to line up with the volcanic activity. Now the most recent volcanic event was out in Mount Gambia in Western Victoria. And that actually happened just a few thousand years ago. So the subduction process where basically you have the material at the Neotomacometic Trench being pushed underneath the Australian continental shelf. This then pushes a lot of crust into the magma at depths of about 400 to 500 kilometers deep under the Earth's surface. And that material sort of gets pushed and then bubbles up as a series of volcanic eruptions on Australia's east coast, where the crust has thinned out a hell of a lot compared to the west and the center of the continent. So this coastal region, east coast region of the Australian continent, has a thinner crust, which means that that material that's been pushed underneath starts to create pressure and bubble upwards. Now, that Australia Zealandia region of the sea floor that's been pushed underneath is highly concentrated with hydrous materials and carbon-rich rocks. That means that that rock material itself creates some interesting geochemistry when it's pushed underneath the actual Australian continent. It's all kind of volatile materials. Now, this is a pretty interesting hypothesis that helps explain why we see a stable, continuous bubbling, because the subduction process itself is stable and continuous. And the material formed has to go somewhere. It sort of churns underneath the Australian continent and then causes some pressure and shift upwards. And that's what we're seeing to creating all of these Australian volcanoes, even though we're so far away. Now, it doesn't create tremendously powerful or frequent volcanoes, but it creates just enough ticking over volcanic activity to create some beautiful natural landscapes that we see on the eastern coast of Australia. Some great research from the University of Sydney, published in the journal Science Advances. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. From volcanoes in Australia and Alaska to how the subduction process can help us date when our continent started to shift around. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia. <laughs>